Hello and welcome to Ashurst Business Agenda, a podcast that speaks with leaders in the business world to get their take and insights into how they are navigating the huge forces of change and disruption impacting their industry and how they are embracing opportunities to evolve, grow and create value. In this, our first episode, we speak with Fraser Hill, General Manager of Digital and Process Transformation at Shell, about the extensive transformation program that he is leading. Influenced by the energy transition and the company's changing strategy and focus into renewables. Fraser shares with us what that transformation looks like for the business and the efficiencies gained through digitization, automation, AI, and not least the value that these projects bring to Shell's customers and shareholders. Alongside Fraser, we speak with Ashurst's own Esther Wu, who is leading the Legal Transformation Services Program at Ashurst Advance, Ashurst's new law division. We will compare Shell's transformation journey with the drivers of disruption in the legal industry, including the efficiencies and value creation around the way legal advice is delivered and what that client journey looks like. This is episode one of Ashurst Business Agenda. Fraser, I want to jump right in. Like many companies across the globe, 2021 is shaping up to be a defining year for Shell with a huge number of transformation projects at play. I wanted to to start by asking you what you think the main drivers for transformation at Shell are, and also maybe give us an idea of what you're really excited and passionate about at the moment. Uh, great question, and actually very timely. We've just uh, recently completed a strategy day uh, where the audience was the investors in our group, where we've announced some pretty impressive targets around uh, what we call the energy transition. And our objective as a business is to be net neutral uh, in terms of carbon emissions by 2050, not only in our own business, but actually the products that we sell to our customers as well. This is a radical step away from traditional oil and gas. In fact, you'll see our business model changing as we invest in renewables uh, increasingly and reconfigure our business towards customers uh, rather than product lines. Coming with that, of course, is a change in the economics of our business and therefore an imperative for us to be highly transformative, not in just in terms of the offering that we make to our customers, but also how we run our business. And so, you know, sitting in a, um, a central function, which um, uh, is accountable for managing the spend uh, across the group, which currently is about $40 billion, um, making sure that we do that as efficiently and effectively as possible is, is key. So the whole sourcing process, uh, which includes the, the legal side of contracting, is going to be a critical enabler for us to digitalize our business and transform the experience of both our suppliers and our customers uh, when they're dealing with Shell. So a highly exciting kind of start to this, uh, this, this 30-year journey. The idea of legal contracting, I think, is, is a good one, and, and I want to explore that later on in the interview, but I wanted to open it up to Esther. So Esther, thinking about the themes and issues that Fraser's raised, do any of those ring true for the transformation work currently underway at Ashurst? Yes, 
for sure. Um, I think obviously um, our business and product is a little bit different from phases. So whilst we and our clients are absolutely focused on um, the green agenda, obviously it plays a slightly different part in our business model. I think digitization for sure. I think all industries, that is a huge push at the moment. And I think particularly COVID has underlined the, the requirement for us to have stronger digital infrastructure and also working practices. I think the drivers for disruption in the legal industry are probably a bit wider and have been going on for a little while, but are ever intensifying. So in the legal industry, there's a greater variety of players compared to the old days. So we've got alternative legal service providers, we've got legal tech companies, you've got the big four kind of coming in. Um, and then you've got um, in-house counsel who have a lot of pressure on them to deliver more for less. So I think for Ashurst, what we're looking at for the few years ahead, and we've got our 2023 um, um, plan is a big focus on transformation in changing the way we deliver. So we have got an internal legal transformation program, which is about looking at what are different ways we can resource our legal services delivery, you know, process re-engineering, absolutely tech. Um, but also we want to look at what we're delivering. So you know rather than thinking about traditional legal again similar to Fraser we're thinking about the client what's the client journey what's the value that we can deliver to clients and that might be by adding adjacent services to traditional legal advice so we started a risk advisory service we've been asked to start doing some legal operations consulting but also going downstream as well so we're starting to do some things where we bring together um, the ability to do um, volume work. So obviously a great deal of legal transformation work currently being undertaken at Ashurst. I just wanted to get your opinion as to whether you think uh, on a broader scale, whether you think that transformation work should actually work hand in glove with a, you know, the broader organisational transformation or whether you think it should be run more independently. It's, it's a good question. I think it's more important that you look at where your firm is or your company is. Um, in some cases, the organization is ready to start with a bigger organizational change, in which case, of course, that's more holistic. Um, it's going to lead to a more efficient way of doing the transformation because everyone's working together. But I think it, you've just got to start wherever you can. So if it is your legal in-house team that is ready to go, they need to start doing what, what they can. Fraser, I'm going to invite you to comment on this as well. Do you think there's a right way or best practice approach to transformation? And could you also just touch on legal contracting as being part of this transformation process? Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, in, in my opinion, uh, one of the factors that um, affects our ability to transform is actually the organizational structure itself. So particularly big companies, but also with smaller companies, they're quite hierarchical and siloed. And therefore, when you're looking at transforming a process, uh, it's really critical that you look across the end to end. So, you know, don't replicate your process analysis around your organizational structure. So, you know, bringing uh, a good example here. So on both the buy side and the sell side, the legal function as a function and as a, a provider of services into the end-to-end -end process needs to be included as much as the customer and the supplier in your an, uh, analysis of what's actually going on. If you don't do that, you end up solving uh, bite-sized problems uh, and not necessarily 
uh, in a good way. Um, a, a solution in one part of the function can actually create a problem elsewhere. Um, I've seen many examples of that. So the integration of uh, functions into, you know, solutioneering across the process space is critical. And, 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 you know, you don't get more critical in the commercial contracting space than, than the legal part of it, which very often, you know, I hear is the, the, the point of friction. You know, everyone talks about, you know, the business prevention function. Well, actually bring them into the church and you've got half a chance of, um, of addressing those issues. So, yeah, absolutely. It's critical to think in that way. Fraser, I just want to raise a particular theme and one that you were quoted uh, by the Financial Times recently uh, in regards to source to pay work. And you're saying that that can be automated with most processes replaced with artificial intelligence. Now, to get to this point, you've said that lawyers and procurement professionals we need to develop coding skills and an understanding of process and data model design. Can you explain your thinking on this a little bit further? Yeah, entirely. You know, when you're when you're looking at strategy, you obviously need to be big and bold. And uh, I'm not I'm not saying that this is going to happen tomorrow, but ultimately, uh, if you look at the uh, the source to pay activities uh, that any company does, they're highly repeatable, and therefore. Uh, you can build a model around the decision points that you have in the end-to-end -end process. It therefore follows if you can build a decision point based on either uh, some form of uh, data analytics or a heuristic, uh, an informal rule where you, um, you know, move left or right. It follows that you can build uh, an AI engine that can replicate those repeatable activities. And so ultimately, many of the things that we do day to day, whether as a lawyer or a procurement professional or as a salesperson, can be eliminated from our work. Now, that frees us up as human beings to do what we're good at, which is generate ideas and have relationships with other human beings. But if you're going to really make it work, you can't rely on your IT organization to turn this stuff on. And in my view, the future is absolutely that, you know, in the same way that, you know, some of us can run a, um, a basic macro in Excel, all of us will have to have some kind of coding skills. My 11-year-old daughter at school is currently learning Python. Now, you know, that's quite um, a relatively advanced piece of technology a few years ago, and an 11-year-old child is learning this. So the, the staff of the future will come already equipped with these capabilities. Um, the question for me is how do we bridge and get there? Uh, and uh, we need to upskill today in order to be able to be prepared for, uh, for tomorrow. I completely agree with you, Fraser, about um, upskilling um, the, the new generation. As for coding for lawyers, and you talk about procurement um, specialists as well, we're also looking at that, we're going through the journey with our current generation, where some lawyers are naturally keen to get their hands on the technology and, you know, do a bit of coding themselves. Um, they definitely need to understand the way the automations are done, how AI works in the background, because the logic is really important, right? Um, and from a technical perspective, you won't get the technical results that you think you're getting if you don't understand um, how the machine learning kind of drives that result. Just on the coding piece, though, I think what I've seen is that there's attempts in different places in the market to actually come up with different kinds of coding. Um, so there's actually a group who are looking at building coding for lawyers. So it's written in a way that's a little bit more understandable and a bit closer to how lawyers are actually, you know, drafting their documents. And I think maybe that's the intersection that's going to come as well. 
I, I don't envy your task. I, I remember someone telling me once about walking into an office uh, and uh, seeing one of the senior partners uh, in front of their PC with a calculator and Excel open and uh, trying to figure out uh, what the, the, the sum of all of the uh, build hours will look like. So um, good luck with that. Yes, definitely. But we do have we do have all sorts giving it a go. You know, some of the, the partners that you don't expect to get involved, you know, if you sit down with them, it is logic, a lot of it. And so once you explain, explain the logic to them, they can start to understand, but it is taking that time. And it's whether or not it's the right investment, because they are right. Things will change a lot in the next few years. How much will they change such, such that they actually impact that level um, of advisor? I actually think a really interesting application of technology is, uh, and just bear with me a little bit, is, is, is actually uh, one that you can learn from Gary Kasparov. Uh, for many years, uh, IBM were coding a, an artificial intelligence machine. I think they call it Deep Blue or Big Blue. I can't quite remember. And it was trying to beat Gary Kasparov at chess. And it, you know, it was failing frequently. And then one year it started beating him and it be started beating him quite regularly. And Gary Kasparov's response was really interesting. Um, instead of disengaging and um, uh, kind of being uninterested, he, he, he started saying, well, this is quite fascinating. How is it this machine's beating me? And the most you know, powerful chess player is not Gary Kasparov and it's not the machine. It's actually Gary Kasparov and the machine. And I think you know, if I look at some of the work that done in procurement and in legal, it involves uh, quite a lot of trawling through data and using your kind of experience to then figure out the most likely solution. Well, wouldn't it be great if on your desktop, if you were a, you know, a solicitor or a barrister or whatever it was, instead of having to do your traditional research through you know, these legal precedents, you could uh, very quickly be given the answer by someone that's watching what you're doing or a machine that's watching what you're doing and uh, instantaneously give you the advice that you need to make the next choice. So that's quite some cool stuff that I think uh, is here today, actually. That is absolutely the really exciting stuff that gets people, I think, inspired and with a vision. I think the question about coding is again, probably a little bit too narrow in that it's about learning new skills, isn't it? So phrase what you're talking about there is actually learning a different way to absorb information. Whereas previously in the traditional, let's talk about the, the traditional legal model, you actually went to the source data, you know, you trawled through the regulations, you trawled through case study, you trawled through, you know, 300 documents to understand what the legal lay of the land is. You've now got machines that you should be able to start to rely on and you, like you say you have to work in a team with them but actually trusting that te that kind of machine to do the thinking is it's a skill that needs to be learned and for us here at shell actually the use of technology uh, across the entire uh, contracting and commercial space is going to be critical because if we can increase uh, our time or, or rather shorten our time to market by making it easier for us to trade with our suppliers and as we create new business part uh, uh, business models and new customers uh, as we transition into this new energy world making sure that it's easier for us to have kind of retail like experiences for our b2b customers and really speeding up commercial relationship is going to be critical for us to be successful in delivering our ambition for both um, society, but also for our shareholders.
So it's a really interesting discussion in regards to maybe a, a different and bigger topic in terms of the generalization of, of the global workforce and whether we can actually afford to be specialists in a, in, a, in a day and age where we really have to be experts across a number of different areas. Yes, we were talking just now, um, going back to coding for lawyers. The other thing I was thinking about is we have proliferated the number of roles that we have at Ashurst. You know, we've got legal technologists, we've got legal analysts who are, none of them are lawyers. Um, at the moment, we have brought people in who have law degrees so that they can understand the legal technical aspects. But actually, they really truly are specialists in their field. So I think there is going to be a change in what roles are necessary and also how those roles work together. Um, I think about our lawyers, they're actually going to have to learn how to manage several different skill sets to bring together a solution that clients need right they need to know how to use a project manager they need to know how to use a legal technologist they need to learn you know how to use various other skills that we may bring in from time to time so with uh, the introduction of ai into more and more of these transformation projects we're really looking at the theme of uh, efficiency as being uh, one of the main drivers and, and results of those transformations. Fraser, what should business leaders be doing to also ensure that they're creating value, particularly with that end customer in mind? So uh, that's a, a really, really good question. And uh, the solution I'm going to give is quite simple, but actually hard to execute. Um, and and uh, this is kind of to do with human nature we tend to be quite myopic and focused on what we are doing and um, it becomes very central in our activities whereas actually one of the things that i advocate very strongly both in terms of uh, legal design but also process design in general is that you have to start back from the user and you know i'll give you a good example and you know this is not a this is not a dig at lawyers uh, this is a, a general observation around contracts you know a contract is designed for a use case that rarely occurs so a contract is designed so that you can resolve a dispute in a court of law if you look at the total number of contracts that are um, executed and uh, you know create a simple percentage model I suspect that less than you know 0.1%, even 0.01% of all contracts ever end up in a court of law. Yet this is the purpose of the design. It's for that 0.01% use case. Actually, if you think about process design, or in this case, contract design, you should be starting with what is the purpose. And for me, the purpose of a contract is to create a common language between buyer and seller and to uh, enable trade, to make trade as frictionless as possible. It is not about going to court. And therefore, the kind of the design principle that I always take, whether it's with, you know, building um, a pricing system or um, doing some uh, continuous improvement is start with the user in mind and understand what it is that they need and design around their needs, not your own. Um, and so that's probably the, a, a quite long answer to your question, but that, that's fundamentally where it starts for me. Esther, I want to go back to an earlier answer where you spoke about the increasing pressure that in-house counsel feel about delivering more for less due to regulatory demands and the globalisation and just the world we live in at the moment. Ashes advanced research from a couple of years ago found that 83% of in-house lawyers felt pressure to increase the efficiency of their function. 
What's your take on the efficiency versus the value dilemma? They want both efficiency and value. I think those two things are not separated. Efficiency is not an end game in itself. Um, there needs to be something that comes with that. Um, so I think when we are talking with our in-house clients, we're absolutely understanding the pressure that they are under. And I think what we're trying to look at is how do we bring solutions that can help them? And sometimes it means that in order for them to deliver something more efficiently, they outsource more. It may be sometimes for them to deliver things more efficiently, they insource more. So we constantly have to have that to and fro with our clients to understand what solutions are most going to help them. But I think going back to the value point, at the end of the day, that is actually what they ask us for. Yes, they do come with efficiency, but they do ask us, you know, when we're pitching, when we're, we're talking to them about partnership. They say, actually, we need to demonstrate value. It's not just about cost. And so the industry has very much moved to more of a client-focused, solution-focused um, outlook. I don't think about when we're delivering legal services, it's just A to B. We've got to think of the client is trying to answer a business problem from X to Y, A to B absolutely is a small part of that and an essential part of that. But let's look at the X to Y, actually, how can we get them there quicker and more efficiently? So say, for example, one of the projects that we're working on is a kind of high volume trade flow kind of work. The client doesn't want to just get the drafting done on the trades quickly. Absolutely, they want that. They actually want to go from negotiation of the trade to execution of the trade quickly. And the legal piece is one step of that. But actually, if we look at the integrated whole and work with them as to how they can get from that negotiation to execution, that is actually a better solution for them. So with that in mind, Fraser, and as a presumably as a law firm customer, what would you like to see from law firms and, and legal and the legal profession as a whole in regards to the transformation journey that Shelley is on at the moment? I'll broaden it out to not necessarily just from, you know, legal partners, but anyone that is a, a supplier or, you know, even a customer of ours. What we're really interested in is the enablement of the strategy. Now, as I mentioned before, we, we've got a societal part to play in, in the energy industry, for sure. But also, you know, we have a, um, a part to play in terms of, you know, quality of returns for our investors. And I think that particularly if you're dealing with an organization and you are a supplier to that organization, you need to bring ideas and solutions that enable their business strategy. It, it comes back to what I was talking to in an earlier question about process. You need to start with the, the objective, the end game, the user in mind, and then apply what it is that they need rather than pushing your own agenda. So intimacy and understanding and being very clear about how you play in the value chain is uh, critical i think if you want to be you know a successful supplier and it then also also follows that if you are you know working with customers that you do the same to them so you know we have customers we have suppliers and and that that mental model needs to be applied uh, universally on the, both the buy and sell side of things esther from your point of view do you think that uh, fraser's wish list there can be met i think it needs to be the world we live in today is global and complex and it is impossible to solve and deliver 
just in silos. We have to work as partners and collaborators. And I think that's the way we all need to move towards. And I think personally for me, yeah, I, I worked in the charity sector for a couple of years and that is actually how the, the nonprofit sector is set up. They don't look as, at other organisations as competitors. Where someone is a potential competitor, they're actually a potential partner and collaborator. And again, that's the view we need to have. What is the bigger impact that we're trying to achieve together? Let's work on it and find the best solution rather than thinking, what do I need? And, and our clients are coming to the, us with that view as well. They say, we know you need to be profitable out of this. We also want to do well out of this. How can we find a solution together that helps us both do well out of this? Um, and that's actually just really helpful. Interestingly, sometimes doing nothing is actually the best thing that you can do for a client. Um, there's a great book by uh, a neurosurgeon called Henry Marsh called Do No Harm. And over the course of his you know, professional life as a neurosurgeon, he learned that sometimes the right thing to do was not to operate, uh, even though his entire training was about brain surgery. And, you know, one of the things that I find frustrating, both having been a salesperson and also now, you know, transforming the, the procurement side of, uh, of things is that uh, very often we get into a negotiation, both parties want to do business, they want to trade, and then uh, we, we stumble on, you know, redlining of, uh, of, of a document. And, you know, sometimes if, and I'm not saying that it's, you know, the other person's fault it's it's kind of a mental model in in the legal industry that sometimes you know because you're being paid you have to say something or do something and it then just creates this you know cycle of, of redlining and I, I i just wonder sometimes if you know coming up with a, a a business model where you get paid not to do something actually might be quite interesting we will definitely have to look at that as part of our pricing strategy phaser <laughs> we'll charge you for doing nothing <laughs> So there's no doubting the challenges ahead of us, and it's fascinating to see some of these exciting transformation projects being executed and realised over the coming months and years ahead. I wanted to uh, open it up to both of you finally to give some insight and maybe some actions and, and key takeaways that you think uh, are really top of mind for you as, as you go on this transformation journey through this year and beyond. It's a really good question and one that I get asked quite a lot, uh, I must admit, and it doesn't matter, matter whether you're transforming, you know, your legal function, your procurement function, your customer relationships. For me, the guiding uh, principle is uh, you should never, ever automate a bad business process. So where I would always advocate that anybody starts is uh, with a pen and paper or a whiteboard and really understand not what you think is happening in your business, but what is actually happening and really get into the nitty gritty of that. And before you even start buying any technology, some you know, contract lifecycle management technology or data mining or whatever it is, understand what is actually happening in your business because 60, 70% of all transformation projects really are about uh, basic process re-engineering. And if you start there, you don't even need to spend any money. Once you've got your process working perfectly in an analog world, then you're really set up for uh, transformation and, and, and digitizing it. I will probably focus more on the change side of transformation. I think we've done well to not really mention our favorite friend COVID um, during this chat. But I think there's positives that we should look at that have come from this time, that people have been forced to make changes um, that they would not have otherwise made. 
Um, for instance, the remote working disruption, that's huge. But actually, we should use that as a positive as businesses um, and build on that change, build on the fact that people have been, you know, have made changes and been successful within those changes. Absolutely. Esther Fraser, thank you very much for being on the Ashurst Business Agenda podcast. Thank you for your time and valued contributions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ashurst Business Agenda. We hope you found this episode both worthwhile and insightful. To learn more about this podcast and our suite of podcast channels, visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. And to ensure you don't miss future episodes, subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform. While there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or review. Thanks again for listening, and goodbye for now.